thinking about like when your client leaves you, do they feel inspired or do they feel like they just got a laundry list of things they can't do? Because that's the opposite of what you should be doing. They should be leaving excited about what they can do already, what they're going to be able to do in the future, and maybe slightly aware of maybe a few things that might have been holding them back that they need to change. But you, 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 you don't want them leaving thinking about all the things they can't do. That was Ian Markow, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. You can get a free trial of their training portal software by heading to teambuilder.com and you can use the code JUSTFLY for a 30-day free trial. Sign up today with Team Builder and see what they can do for you for your training programs and your team. If you're in the world of sports performance, you've probably heard of jump testing mats. These mats use hang time to measure total jump height or contact time to measure quickness abilities off of the ground. The best jump mat that I've come across also happens to be a sponsor of this show, which is the Plyomat. The Plyomat is not only accurate, easy to use, and affordable, but it also allows you to string multiple mats together to add an extra dynamic to plyometric testing and training. To check out the Plyomat, you can head to plyomat.net. That's P-L-Y-O-M-A-T dot net. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for tuning in today. And I'm excited to welcome Ian Markow to the show. He is the founder of Markow Training Systems and has extensive education and experience in the realms of biomechanics, movement, breathing, and mobility. It can be easy to get overwhelmed in today's training age with the amount of information on all the ways that athletes can be assessed and all the intervening exercises that can be given. And Ian does an incredible job of taking a lot of complex information and creating a streamlined structure to the core components of training. So he'll be chatting about that today in light of breathing, mobility, movement, and the critical pieces that go into a training program. It was a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed talking to Ian, and I'm excited to get you guys this episode. So let's get here to 394 with Ian Marco. Ian, welcome to the show, man. It's great to have you as a guest. You know, I am curious. I was just thinking this. What drew you into mobility? I, I feel like less people getting in the training world would necessarily say, oh, I want to do this. I really love mobility, like walking into exercise science first day or whatever, right? Like compared to, hey, I lifted weights or I did this, I did track or something. So curious with your thoughts and interest in that uh, section of the training world. Yeah, I would definitely say uh, that I'll pretty much almost go 100% contribution to uh, Dr. Andrea Spina, Spina, honestly. I mean, just like listening to him talk was so eye-opening and the light bulb moments that were going off in my head when I first got introduced to, you know, seeing him speak was huge for me. Um, I had a lot of clients at the time I was working at Goldman Sachs in New York City. So, you know, I have all these people that are like running on E, but also want to train 11 out of 10 every time. They have no mobility. (laughs) So I became the person to kind of reel them back in. And also what was cool about those people is they're really smart. You know, you can't get there unless you're smart, you know? So when you work with the smarter clients, like I, I really have had a, a, a great client base over the years and different jobs and all kinds of different things. Um, but being able to actually explain that to them, you know, using some of the things that I learned from, from Dre was, was huge. So that would be kind of my number one thing, just like having it make sense. Like, Hey, you can't do this at all. And now we're going to put a weight in your hand and ask you to do it. 
So we should find some middle ground in the meantime. So like that just made so much sense to me. So that's what drew me into mobility. Gotcha. Yeah. It's like problem solving, like, like need based, uh, which yeah. I think is, is awesome. Cause I think so often whatever, like the fitness or strength and conditioning, it's so interdisciplinary. There's so many pieces. And so often it's the piece that we grew up with. Like I grew up, I love the weight room. I did track and field or whatnot. And for you, it was, Hey, this is the need in front of me. This, this, um, this group is, you know, all in on beating themselves up. So how can I find ways to, uh, uh unpack and work the other side? Yeah, hundred percent. I was stiff too. I mean, especially <laughs> ankle wise, like before I started understanding the foot, like, man, it was just, it was bad, you know? <laughs> so that was, uh, that was, that was a need for me as well. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your journey with that. So you mentioned Andrew Spina, I know like, like functional range conditioning and some of what we'll talk about today is that versus like the skeletal model of things. I mean, I remember it was about probably 12 years ago, I was in Orange County and uh, watching Quinn Hennick present on uh, range of motion and just showing for the first time I'd ever seen how the skeleton could impact range of motion. I was like, whoa, like, I'm like, well, now what do I believe about mobility? You know, <laughs> like, I don't even know where to start now. It's kind of like my mind is blown. So tell me a little bit about your education and mobility and the sources you've drawn from. Uh, and maybe we'll just kind of go from there. Absolutely. Yeah, so I, when growing up, I, I I played basketball. Really bad kid, kind of like kind of threw it away, get, get kicked off the team, that kind of stuff. Um, but I also was so I've always been an athlete, and then also got into like you know like think about the kid that maybe not nowadays because it's actually changed, but like think about the avatar back in the day of being at LA Fitness. So you kind of like have a, a t shirt, you cut the sides off, you're like really worried about like your V cut. Uh, you know, you love doing chess. So like I grew up in more so bodybuilding in terms of training growing up too. Um, so that was like my first intro of like really my base. And then from there, I went into kind of group fitness when I became a, a personal trainer, um, which was really, really helpful um, and really fulfilling in some ways. And then also really frustrating in other ways, obviously seeing a lot of people doing too much or not the right thing or whatever it might be. Um, and then from there, like you said, I found, um, you know, I found stick mobility. I found um, FRC and FRS and everything they do. And I just like dove 100% into that. I got to the point where like other people were going to the cert and being like, hey, Ian, like, I don't know what to do. So like, can you help me? And I became a mentor to them like way too early in my career. Like I was did not know enough to be mentoring someone else, but they were still getting results off of me helping them. So I was like, all right, this is cool. I'll ride with that. And that's what started me wor working with other coaches as well. Um, and then from there, I uh, worked in a physical therapy clinic where I was, uh, you know, working with the, the whole spectrum of, of people. And um, my the physical therapist, Fabian Garcia, was like a real mad scientist, you know, did all kinds of stuff. So that kind of led me into like, you know, what we were talking about before, where like you and I both, you know, are open to, to new ways of approaching things and not just thinking there's one way. So that was really huge for me. And also working with people post injury was really cool because it, um, you know, just transformed the way I think about injuries in a lot of ways also. Um, and then from there, that's when I started to getting into like all, all the other stuff, like we're talking about the, the, let's say, well, I'll just name the people. How about that? So like Alex Effer has been huge for me, huge David Gray guy, love all of his stuff. Uh, Gary Ward, um, amazing. You know, he transformed how I looked at the foot. Um, I like to credit Bill Hartman, even though I didn't learn so much directly from him. I feel like if you've looked enough, you realize that like a lot of these concepts have basically fell from the tree that is him. Um, and then, uh, 
Yeah, so those the integrating those three among others obviously um, have really become like a full approach for me. And uh, in terms of mobility, those are the things that I use there. So like I might give you hip mobility by using something that I learned from Gary to unlock your foot, right? Like all of a sudden your foot's not locked up. Wow, your hip freed up too. I might use someone that's a little bit stiffer that needs a loaded stretch. So I'm going to use something different there. I might use something that I learned from David, which is more of like a a yielding or a relaxing into a position instead of trying to force it. And then I might just go right back to the bread and butter of like, hey, man, you're going to do really well with cars. Let's do these. And for a lot of people, I'll do a mixture of them. But I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make when integrating systems is thinking that you need all of them in one way. And that's not true. Because I think some people are going to do well with FRC and some people are going to do well with doing absolutely nothing from FRC. Some people are going to need breath work and some people will do great with never even mentioning that they can't breathe well. So being able to uh, kind of decipher what person needs what and completely leave something out is something that I've gotten really good at over the past year that I think is um, really, really beneficial. Yeah. With... um. You, you mentioned cars uh, and then just with functional range conditioning as well, before we get too much farther, especially with some of the, the lingo that some people might not be familiar with, uh, can sure. you describe a little bit more of that? So cars, FRC, some of the key points that uh, re- reflect your home base. Absolutely. So uh, if you're on Instagram right now and you see a post and you see someone say like, this isn't mobility and it's a stretch. And then they show you like some slow movement after and go, but this is that's FRC. So like just for like the casual that doesn't know that's what you're looking at. But essentially FRC is functional range conditioning created by Dr. Andrea Spina. Cars is just joint circles. Controlled articular rotations is the acronym, but you just think of it as joint circles. So you're essentially just taking your joints through a full range of motion every day. It's absolutely a huge staple of what I do. Um, I think of it as kind of like a lifelong skill, right? I'm t- telling, I'm showing you what your hip can currently do. I'm showing you where it can be. And then I'm giving you the tool to do it every single day forever. So something like doing hip, shoulder, and spine is just a no brainer. Like, even though I just said, not everybody needs it, or I might not use it with some person realistically, if they were the right type of person to just do anything, mm-hmm. they would benefit from it. You know, like it's really going to help pretty much anybody. And then kin stretch is basically the the group fitness application of FRC. So they're not really different. It's just kin stretches with a group of people. FRC is me working with you one-on-one. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. And I, I think I, I was actually having this thought the other day um, with track and field and, and, and I'll get to how this fits with the cars because you mentioned a home base. And I think that within, or just, let's just say skill learning. So track football or whatever, it's it is interesting and people talk a lot about drills versus like doing the whole thing like do the whole skill dynamically like small-sided games or something that's more faster and and interactive versus drills are much more broken down and can not be very transferable potentially if they're too um far they're not there's not enough information i'm actually describing that way too much anyways what i'm trying to say is i think it, it uh frc and cars kind of feels it has the feel of drills it's it's simple things very easy to do there's a there appears to be, from my experience, with a very um, low learning curve. Like it's the bar to to do it is pretty low, and I do think that like the two sides of the coin to me is is people bag on drills a lot because especially in skill learning, coaches can over rely. People don't like cause athletes or try to set the space for athletes to think for themselves and you know make decisions or interact with information with the environment. But at the end of the day, too, there is something about going through things 
you know, kind of like Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid, like something that's just so basic everyone can do that is a home base of sorts and building off of there and having a, a basic like literacy, a, a basic set of things that's a home base that that allows for familiarity and is and meets you where you're at. And then maybe that me, being the big thing, it's simple and it meets you where you're at and there's a low bar, bar to jump over. I was just curious what your thoughts are with that because it seems to me, from my experience doing these articulations, very simple, anyone can do them versus hey, let's really get into the compression expansion model and all that. It just seems once you get into that stuff, there's potentially a lot more complexity there. Um, so I'm just curious what your thought is on that, like and how that, the simplicity of the flow of the, the session. Yeah, so I get your point and I do agree in some way about the simplicity and the ease of starting. But when you dig really deep into a lot of the cars and a lot of the FRC stuff, there is so much minutia that it actually mm. can be very, very complex. Um, even just thinking like compensations, like, you know, everybody that starts doing cars or joint circles is going to do them with too much range of motion and they're going to like use their back instead of their hip. They're going to use their rib cage instead of their shoulder. You know, they're going to yeah. kind of cheat the motion, right? So like one of the things that I tell everybody that is going to get into that which is just free on YouTube. You can just type Ian Marco cars and go there. But like, you're gonna, you just start smaller. Just show me what you have. Don't try to show me like your greatest ever circle. So there's just a little bit of nuance in there. But in terms of like the difference between the two and the nuance, one of the things about the cars is you're hitting corners that you simply don't hit anywhere else. Like if you looked at a hip car and you thought to yourself, like, I get that in my squat, you don't. Now, the downside is, is most of the time it's open chain. So that is a, a, a significant downside, especially as we know, especially in this uh, context of sprinting, athletic stuff. You're not doing, you know, yeah, you jump over stuff in the high jump, but you you ran there with your feet. You know what I mean? So like that's super important, that interaction. Um, but there's corners and, and things that you're hitting in your cars that will maintain that joint over time. That's simply I just haven't found anything that gets there. And while your breathing and your your con compression expansion, correctives, all that world might open up a space, when do you walk through the door and actually use it? And then when do you actually hit the corners of that room, which is what the cars do? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I apologize if I, again, the over trying to oversimplify cars, because maybe that's no what my brain you had it's to. Like, yeah, I, I just it. saw the hip cars and that looked pretty simple. So, you know, like. A lot more yeah. simple than trying to, you know, assess what's reciprocal and what's not and what breathing drill to give you, you know, like at least totally in my it. experience. So, and uh, something that, that um, I was thinking with that, and this is something I've thought about for a while, especially as I've gone into different models of mobility. And this is where even, even thinking about the term mobility, I think people who are more, um, I know a lot of people listening to the show, including myself, a huge, just a huge passion of mine is output speed and power and and you know, sports skill displays a power and those types of things. And then we hear mobility and we think, oh, it's just like the total opposite. Like it's just static stretching and whatnot. But I, that's where I think a lot of people go. And uh, an anecdote with the cars you mentioned is, and this, I've found this is, uh, I, I did breakdancing stuff when I was in high school. Like, I don't know, I just one day my senior year, like, I want to learn how to do this stuff. I got all VHS, like not an old, at the time I wasn't old, it was like a VHS on how to breakdance. I watched everything. I tried everything. Um, I was actually looking back, I was amazed at some of the moves I could do back when I was 18, just self-taught, but I, I still do a lot of that stuff just in the warm up. Like, Hey, I'm going to do 10 to 20 minutes of like, you know, groundwork or whatever. And I use it and I weave it in between warm up drills just cause it gets me moving and it feels good. And what I've found is that 
my athlete's test. So like my shoulder range of motion or can basically, can I touch my fingers together behind my back? That kind of thing. When I was throwing javelin in college, I could get about maybe like two inches of overlap between the two fingers, something like that. Maybe three, probably not more like two these days, man, like it's like within an inch is not bad. Like that not, they barely will touch and they really can't. But when I do breakdancing stuff for a warm-up, they and I do it for like 20, 30 minutes, they can. And that works better than any like any other drill, any breathing drill, any decompression drill that I've found. Like nothing can touch that in terms of that dynamic shoulder range of motion. And and I'll just say too, what is breakdancing stuff? Just think too, as easy as I could describe it, some of the basic movements, just think being in a crab position on the floor and doing a lot of dynamic stuff that gets you into a bear crawl and all sorts of twists and spins out of that. And a lot of it is getting close to a full range of motion, probably not a total cars, but it's, you know, it's fast and it's explosive and it's getting pretty close and you're working all these loops. And so, you know, but, but then you say, and, and, you know, it does improve mobility, but it's everything. Like if I was to throw a baseball after that, it would be substantially better after that movement in the warm up than, Hey, go do these five, you know, a little bit more mundane drills. And that's just the dichotomy I've been thinking about for a while now, you know? And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. And obviously you, you definitely summed it up with some of the FRC cars material. Yeah, for sure. So like, think about your breakdancing as you're basically describing like closed chain shoulder rotation or shoulder movement, right? So like that would make tons of sense that that would work. And that's also a good, good little like kind of tidbit to think about what we were talking about earlier about like the closed chain. So by you putting your hand on the ground, that's super helpful versus you doing a lot of what the car's movements are specifically more so for the hip than the shoulder, in my opinion, because when in athletics, like your hands are rarely on the ground for most sports anyway. So like the idea to be able to lean all the way back and catch a ball, like think like Odell, right? So like being able to access those range of motions is really important in terms of, um, what, hold on. What was the question again? One more time. I just lost. Oh yeah. No, no worries. Yeah. It's basically, um, what you thought about like, like a break dancing or more of, um, like a uh, an FRC, like the cars, like like going from crab to crawl to all sorts of ranges, um, and maybe in comparison like, to cars, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I would say yeah, in comparison to cars. But then also, I would like to ask you, and this was the next question. I totally apologize. I didn't frame that very well. In the sense no of where I was going, I was like, hey, here's a cool anecdote. What do you think about that, Ian? <laughs> yeah. uh, but I, what I, this is leads into what I wanted to ask you was, um, how does it relate to more of the structural stuff, like compression, expansion, shape of the rib cage, things that are a little bit hard or related to breathing, or things that might be a little bit more difficult or more are lo- more long term, or that might need more manual therapy, things like that to get in there. Um, so, yeah, that's hopefully that brings it full circle. Yeah, for sure. So, like in terms of like the comp- compression, expansion, and all that kind of stuff, I do find that that would almost be the first step in a lot of ways because to me, like. It sucks to say, but like if your breathing sucks, like God, like everything kind of suffers, you know, and like I'm going to do some form of breath work with almost every single person, like 90% of people. And the baseline level might simply be like, hey, man, like I just need you to tape your mouth before you go to bed. I just want you to like start breathing in between your, in your nose more. And uh, we're going to give you one day that's aerobic and do a little conditioning. And I just want you to try breathing through your nose, even if it's just in between breaks of like high intensity stuff. So like, I really do think that that, that the breath work stuff and like, even though I think it's a little bit overused, the classic, um, what is it? Uh, proximal stability for distal mobility. I do think it's a little bit overused, um, but I still do think it has value because 
the amount of people that I find that can't organize their midline and how it affects their shoulders and hips is like a drastic number. So I do find that that stuff really has a huge effect on it. And in my, in my honest opinion, I really think that that's what FRC is missing because FRC is based off of dynamic systems theory, which is kind of like super open-ended, like, Hey man, just like do it a bunch of different ways. Keep showing up, do it a bunch of different ways. You know what I mean? Which is like cool. But like, if you are organized at the middle, it actually opens up options elsewhere in a lot of ways. And then yeah. when you double down and use the FRC stuff, like the cars, especially loaded, like, and, and, and I know you mentioned earlier, like the idea of like a lot of people will approach this stuff like it is an easy static stretch. But the truth is like, if I had you do a hip car with a one pound or three pound ankle weight on, and you did 10 of them in a row slow, like you're going to get cooked. Like everyone is going to get cooked. So it actually is very intense and very specific, which is one of the things that sets FRC apart and why I think they've had so much success. And so do the people using it. Um, but yeah, putting them both together and then starting off with kind of like really assessing what's going on at the pelvis and rib cage, and then going back to the femur and the humerus and, and the neck and all the other stuff. I do find a lot of success in that approach. And I think it just comes down to the individual context of who's going to need what and when. Yeah. I really like what you said there. I actually made a little um, Venn diagram. I like to draw a lot during these conversations. And I made a little Venn diagram of um, like almost you have these outer arcs like FRC. And then you have like the line, like the lining up the midline. Like are you talking about like, like Pat Davidson said, like sternum over zipper, like that kind of thing, like being able to like the inside of the arch, those kind of things. Yeah. And even just start, like most people think of neutral spine as like a flat spine, but realistically, like you're supposed to have an arch in your lower back. You're supposed to have the reverse curve for your upper back and then your neck's supposed to go the other way. So like even neutral spine isn't a flat line, but learning how to actually start an exercise with those things organized, not necessarily uh, over zipper, like as if you're getting into a hinge, but even just sim as simply having your ribs down and just like mm. not sitting in a rib flare all the time, not being super extended. and I think, you know, like that's obviously swung too far also because you got people walking around tucking all day. But, you know, being able to start off in a good position is going to give you way more options wherever you want to go after that. And like I've seen that time and time again, you know, it just it just makes too much sense to me. So when you're doing um, like the, the cars based uh, routine, how do you incorporate the breathing into that? Is that not usually something in there? And then if not, or 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 however it is, how do you um, interplay like the ribs, the breathing with a typical cars based session then? Yeah. So on a bigger scale, if it's someone that is like really needing help in this position, um, I might have what we talked about, um, you know, off air about the secret sauce. So basically like a series of exercises that are ultra specific to them that are going to unlock things through breath or position or whatever it might be and really set them up for success to start the, the exercise. So that would be like the more in-depth version. But honestly, most people that are doing cars, if they just started their first rep with like three full quality breath cycles, especially with an emphasis on fully exhaling without crunching, like every single thing they do is going to be better. And when they lose it and then just take a second to get it back, that is going to make it so much better. So like starting off early on educating what it feels like to have everything connected. I mean, I just got off the call right before this with one of our, um, you know, like our online coaches who's uh, in our mobility coach plus course. And she literally went to the breath work session, our course and just stopped. And like, she's been there for six weeks because she told me she's like, 
I had a baby. Everyone's telling me to brace my core. I'm at CrossFit, blah, blah, blah. I did your, your breath work one time and I've never felt my core like that before. And I was sweating like profusely out of nowhere. And it's like, if you can feel that and understand what it means to feel it. And I'm not talking about like your six pack. Cause like anybody, just like anybody could make you tired. Anybody could go back and do a hundred crunches and feel their six pack, but feeling like TVA deeper stuff and the integration between these deeper muscles is is a game changer and i honestly believe that like you cannot get tva unless you know how to fully exhale yeah, you're not going to get the deepest right? stu- say it again transverse abdominus right just sorry just, sorry yeah, yeah sorry i so, know like think <laughs> so <laughs> think transverse abdominus is like your corset so like picture like an old uh you know old english like they would squeeze the girl into the tight dress the corset is like that deepest layer of tissue and you're not going to be able to actually access that unless you learn how to fully exhale because it's when everything gets squeezed out of you that you're able to actually get that. And it doesn't have to stay there and hold. You're not walking around puckered up all the time. But just to have access to it and to be able to relax that is is huge to me. And I, I think that's something that's severely undertrained. On the level of supplements, Lost Empire Herbs has been my go-to for the last five years. As someone who's constantly observing nature in motion to help me understand movement better, so too do I draw from nature in my supplementation regime. If you want to check out some of my favorite supplements for energy, strength, and enhancing the total impact of your training regimen, things such as Shiliagit, which has been well-recommended by many strength coaches, the Phoenix Formula, which was my original Lost Empire Herb supplement that really made me a believer in the power of herbalism, Things like pine pollen, mushroom tinctures, and more, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can use the code Joel15, that's J-O-E-L-1-5 for 15% off your order. Definitely check out Lost Empire Herbs. They're an awesome company and will really help that total aspect of your performance training process. Yeah, I'll have to come back and ask you, I know one of my later questions was getting a little bit more into the breath work. Um, One of the things that I've become a bigger fan of is just thinking about, like I mentioned, like the lowest bar to jump over, like the simplest way to introduce this thing. And maybe that's what I was kind of getting at a little bit with um, the drills versus maybe the, the part hole method and that ideology. But as you're talking about the cars, I always think back to different parts of my own training and then things I've always enjoyed that stuck with me that I always try to make sure I can get in my own client work when I can. And hurdle mobility and this like hurdle dynamics is something like in track and field, even for my clients who don't do hurdles if they have hurdles hurdling is in there like and and that's pretty common in track like you watch like a lot of high jumpers and they're running over hurdles you watch Werner Gunther the shot putter in the 80s he's running over hurdles and you do the hurdle mobility and it's it's not gonna be a full car you know but it's it's like I don't know 70 80 it's kind of like maybe I think about the 80 20 like how close do you have to get to full range to get like that total benefit but I just know doing like a series of dynamics over the hurdles in all sorts of different ways seems to get the hips pretty good. And I think about like Indian clubs and, you know, like different bear crawl to crabs and mace bell work. And I, what, I'm, what I'm asking is how, um, I guess, how much, how close can those things get you to, in your opinion, uh, you know, and, and I don't know how, how much of that you've done side by side or just other common strength movements. How close can that get you to the result without necessarily having to go through and, and saying, okay, we're really going to slow it down. We're really going to go through the full range and feel every centimeter. Um, not trying to straw man at all. Like, oh, it's so boring and slow, you know, but like, you know what oh, I'm saying? I get it. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it can get you as close as the goal is. So for example, like 
if you want to do middle splits and I'm doing the hurdle drills with you, you're never really going to get to middle split. But if you started off at the most basic level and your secondary goal is you want to run and you also play basketball recreationally, that is a phenomenal start point before I start getting into like all these end range isometrics and things like that. So you might start off with something simple. I get your buy in. You're like, oh, I can do all these. This is great. It feels good to be dynamic. I remember I used to play basketball. Well, you know what I mean? And it just rolls into buy-in. And then later on, I go, listen, we've noticed that your hips have improved. You see how much easier, how much springier you are over this hurdle, right? Well, now, if you really want to do your middle split goal, we need to get more into some of the specific stuff. So it'll roll right in there. So it really comes down to the goal. But like like you said with the breakdancing, um, like you said with animal flow, Another great example of this is dynamic warmups. Like go to an NFL game and watch before the game. They literally do a workout that would crush most general population clients just by stretching and dynamically moving through the, the, the field. You know what I mean? So like, are they getting that last 15 to 10% of the corner of extension and IR of the shoulder car? No, probably not. But they're getting a lot of different things and it might be just enough for them. And if it isn't, that's when you can go in and say, hey, guess what? I got the perfect tool for you. And that's where FRC does really good because it's so specific. I mean, they literally have the ability in the system to get as specific as you possibly could. Yeah. So you mentioned like, um, and I was thinking about this with mobility too, in the sense of, I feel like it's a natural desire tendency, whatever you're training. I mean, we want to be able to scale it all the way up, you know, like, Hey, I'm, I'm into lifting weights. I'm going to scale it all the way up to a powerlifting meet and lift X amount of weight. If I'm in, you know, speed training, like 40 yard dash or track and field, you know, I'm going to scale it as high as I can go mobility. It's interesting because there's that, well, one, I'm working with athletes and well, hopefully you're good enough. You know, you're, you're moving well, you feel good. Or you could go like, you know, I got like Pavel's relaxing a stretch back here and Bob Cooley's stretching book and things like that. And it's like, all right, well, let's take this, let's, let's get after this, you know, <laughs> like, and, and there's that natural, or, you know, do it, let's do a pancake stretch, let's do the splits. And so I, you know, um, I guess I would, what I would ask is, uh, thoughts on the FRC, the cars that versus, a, um, based on a variety of goals, like with an athlete versus maybe an athlete or a gen pop who's like, hey, I really want to do the splits or whatnot. Um, yeah, to just take on those different avenues uh, of outcome. Yeah. So like, well, why don't I give you an example? So for myself, right? So at first I was like, yo, I'm going to like squat ass the grass. Even though my ankles were just horrendous. My hips weren't good. I was like going to do middle splits. I was going to do all this stuff. Right. And then I started thinking about like, what's actually important to me. And like the most important thing to me is that I dominate my weekly basketball run. And <laughs> I do not need splits at all for that. Like I literally do not need them. Could I get a little bit better at, you know, shank angles, leaning, being a little bit to be able to play lower to the ground? That would make me better, I admit it, right? But what I need for that could easily just be some hip cars in my warm-up. It could be a really deep split squat isometric at the end of my strength day or on my off day. Um, I could do a horse stance throw in there every oh, once yeah. in a while. So, like... There's a million ways that I can actually get that. And I don't necessarily need to go fully down the rabbit hole of mobility to be able to do that. But one, one thing that I do love about FRC is like when no matter who finds me, I will always have something for them. For example, I have someone that has like a really four year tennis elbow, right? They come to me. I, 
I automatically know I know how to check their shoulder. I know how to check their wrist. I know how to check their elbow. So I can check everything in that area in terms of assessment, add some somewhat objective values to it, right? But number one thing, their elbow hurts. I'm validating you. Your elbow hurts. I know it hurts. Let's do something for your elbow. Here's an elbow car. You're going to take your elbow through a full range of motion. You know what's going to help? Moving the joint that hurts. Like no matter what. Does it matter whether it's the chicken or the egg and it's actually their right chest expansion that's the problem and, you know, they had a a wrist injury? Of course, all that stuff matters. But day one, I always have something for that person. And I just, Mm -hmm. that's such an empowering skill as a coach and for the client to buy buy-in because you get a lot of these people, especially with the compression expansion model or like you'll see as an Instagram post like, hey, you uh I know your elbow hurts, but that's not the site of the pain. I'm like, does that help the client? Absolutely not. Right. But it's like, hey, like I noticed that your shoulder has a couple of deficits. Like, let's work on that together. And I think you can generally get stronger. So, like, let's strength train and keep you fit while we work around some of your limitations. But also specifically for your elbow, like when you go to play tennis or paddle, like, why don't you go ahead and do these elbow cars? Let's do a few more of these every day and just keep the thing moving. Does that make sense? And they go, yeah, absolutely. You know, so like, I think that's an invaluable skill as well to just literally have something for every single joint, know what the joint's supposed to do, and then be like, hey, here's something that'll creep closer to what it should be doing. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. And it is it is interesting how, like, how do we get attention? How do we get buy-in? How do we get people you know, in the marketing world, how do you get the eyeballs on your, you know, section of the training universe? And well, hey, like just saying like that, I know your elbow hurts, but it's the fascia and it's actually here. And, you know, it certainly could be, but it also could be a few other things too. You know, I mean, the body is so complex and- And we'll never know. Yeah. (laughs) The longer (laughs) I've been doing this, the more I realize that, that it's just, there's, it's like we almost sometimes it was some of the really complex systems is it could- it could be a really great thing, but it also could just be a way to draw attention to yourself. And then you do the, all the normal stuff that everyone kind of does anyways with a little bit of that you know, sprinkled in. And, and I love what you meant. And again, not to take away from people who are just beautifully just genius in that complex world, because I've learned an immense amount from them. And you know, not to also stereotype anyone's program, what they do or don't do. But I think we've all seen those types of you know um, hooks. 100%. Um, but yeah, like you said, like, I mean, for me, my home base uh, in, in that realm has just been, I mean, you could say more or less like animal flow and hurdle, hurdle mobility. Like those are two of my, and those are so simple. Like there, there's literally, I mean, there's almost no, you don't technically need an assessment. Uh, I mean, you know, you could just say, Hey, just start doing this stuff. And some people might just feel better. <laughs> like, you know, like you said, like, what's the next, um, and I've just been thinking about this a lot since I went to evolve move plays, um, um, Ash, um, Asheville, uh, <laughs> workshop with Aaron Cantor, Aaron Cantor was on the podcast and just that, that it's just building on me. That low barrier of entry has just been building on me. That thing that anyone can do right away, first day, feel success, not need a 10-minute lecture on, here's why it's going to help you and this, that, and the other thing. And, and not that there's not a time to educate. Obviously, there is. But it's almost like we live in a body and experience the world through our body first. you know. And, and so, the body first, being able to go through the process and feel things before it needs to be explained. I think is a really valuable thing. And so I think, yeah, it's interesting trying to, for me, trying to formulate my worldview in this really complex arena of things, you know, that's something I've grown to appreciate more and more. And that also, you know, when you said like the, the cars and FRC is your home base, I, I, I like that makes sense. You know, that, that makes sense to me why, um, why that is. 
Yeah, the assessment alone is something that I've really changed my mind a lot about over the years, and especially as of late, like, you know, I did the FRA, which is functional range assessment. So you basically like learn how to give someone a two and a half hour assessment. So I'm talking about like, let me see how much you can lift your big toe. Does your wrist move? Uh, Does your head turn? You know what I mean? Which is like super valuable. But at the same time, after like my 30th one of doing that with someone, I'm like, why am I doing this? You know what I mean? And I think uh, credit to actually Angus, right? Mm. So Angus Bradley, right? He, He had a post a while ago that really resonated with me. And he was just talking about like, you know, you don't need to assess someone if you're a personal trainer. Because I think when you start following these people on Instagram, not so much Angus, but like other people of like, you know, they have these amazing skills and they know so much about anatomy and there's all these complex things that they're posting about. You can really feel kind of singled out. Like maybe I don't know what I'm doing. And like, it's a good thing to feel like that if you keep going and you learn more, but it's perfectly okay to just fill the hole that you can fill right now, which might be like, hey, it's day one. Oh, your hip hurts when you squat ass the grass? Well, guess what? We're going to box squat. Oh, okay. You you have trouble going overhead? Great. We'll just do incline. Oh, incline didn't work out? We'll just bench press regular or with dumbbells. You're fine. Uh, you know, so like watching them move and just going through stuff is perfectly fine, you know? But like, I think if you scroll too long on Instagram, yeah. you can really get caught up in like, why am I not using all these complex things? But like, one of the things that really taught me that is like, being a growing up in a, you know, crunch, the commercial gym, you know, there's people that are using like just heinous things. Like I'm talking about like 180 single leg jump from two BOSU balls in a session. (laughs) And that same client that's doing that, I've seen them lose 30 pounds. I've seen them come to the gym more than ever. I've seen them smile. I've seen them be completely fulfilled and laughing during the session with their trainer. And this guy's training was terrible. Did she get hurt? No. Did she reach all her goals? Yes. Was she really happy and got a healthier lifestyle? Yes. Like ultimately, that's what we're supposed to do. I think we want to often, a lot of us want to solve complex problems. Yes. But in the past year or two, I've solved so many complex problems and failed at solving some of them that like I resonate and really enjoy sometimes getting a simple problem. Yeah. Like I'll get someone that's like, hey, man, I, re- I saw your shoulder content, really looking to build up my delts. Hell yeah. Let's go. I would love to work with you. We'll talk comedy and movies and and life in between sets and it'll be great. And there's nothing wrong with that experience either. You know? Yeah. I think the, I was just going to say the simple problem, there's just something to, I've come to value more and more the art of finding like the simplest thing that'll solve whatever it is. Like even, um, Kyle Waugh had said uh, something about like a 15 minute assault bike. Hey, that helped me feel better. You know, like, it's just like gets the body moving, you're alternating. It's kind of like the gait cycle, expansion through blood flow. All right. Yeah, I feel good. Or, or, you know, you could do that or you could like go into the minutia and just like do a bunch of tests and retests for like 20 minutes. And oh, I think I'm there, you know, like, and uh, it's, I, I wanted to ask you about that. I know you talked about that and David, uh, you were on David's podcast talking about the test retest. And I think there's a lot of really interesting things there. I know for me, I, you know, and I, I think some in some ways I'm not a big by nature, like, hey, I'm going to record every number and go back to it all the time type person on all these ranges of motion degrees and stuff. But I've also seen people really bias tests. And I also see myself doing that to try to get the thing to say I'm successful. Um, yeah, with that in mind, I'm curious to what your take is. I know you're talking about that with David and just go a little bit into the testing, retesting yeah. and where you've gone there. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it works for some people. I don't do it at all. Um, I do test things, but I definitely would never retest and test things over and over again in a session. Ah. Um, 
because I do feel like those things are short-term changes anyway. So like, what are you actually measuring? I think like you're able to do, I think most people should be honest with themselves. I mean, you look at any of the PRI stuff like that and like, it's just brutal. I mean, we even have an episode with Alina, who I love, who's a great PRI person on our YouTube channel. And people are commenting under like, this is how she cheated this. This is how mm-hmm. she cheated that. And I was like, hey, man, these are great comments. I don't disagree with any of them. <laughs> you know what <laughs> I mean? Like, it's it's so easy to cheat those tests. Yes. Um, but like knowingly and knowing and, and unknowingly. Um, and I, I completely agree with that. That's why I don't really do the retest, retest. I also think back to what I was just saying before about the assessments. It puts so much pressure on the coach or the practitioner yeah. to create this magical thing. So on Instagram, you saw a post and you were like, wow, this guy did five breaths in this position and he got more shoulder range of motion than I've ever had. And it's like, okay, great. But now you're going to your drill and expecting that on every single one. And it's just not, it's just not how it works. And even if it did open up that range of motion, that doesn't mean you're strong there. That doesn't mean that you needed it in the first place. It's just, there's so many layers to it. And like you said, sometimes having the simplest barrier of entry, like for example, what I tend to do with most people is, yeah, we'll do some some hip cars. Yeah, we'll do a little bit of breath work. But the majority of your session is actually just doing like alternating strength work because mm-hmm. it's going to check more boxes than everything else we mentioned. It's fun. It is dynamic, right? Like I didn't I don't want to sit there and do pails and rails or like mm-hmm. basically isometric stretching forever, right? So, being able to do something that you're going to get stronger, your aerobic system is going to be challenged as well because it's going to get your heart rate up or keeping the rest relatively low. Um, and then even just like, like you said, starting off every session with the assault bike, I mean, that could do more for you than anything, but people talk a lot about breath work. And this is something I got from Kyle Dobbs that really changed the way I thought about it. And it's like, what's the ultimate breath work if it's not cardio? You know what I mean? Like yeah. stress your system, how you breathe in. not good. You need more. You know what I mean? So like simplifying it's like yeah you can breathe really well in a 90 90 hip shift but like what happened when i put you on the airdyne like you died you know what i mean and there's there's just so many people out there and trainers that are like they're training someone who's 70 pounds overweight and they're spending 30 minutes of their session on the ground and it's like i i don't know that that's a great idea because you know what opens up a lot of range of motion like not being obese Mm -hmm. like yeah that would be super helpful you know what i mean yeah yeah, the breath work is an interesting one. And yeah, like you said, it's like training at the highest possible complexity. One of the things that I've been really working with the last year is, well, and one just noticing, just going sometimes for my strength workouts, if I'm at home and I, I work, um, work out at my gym in my basement, I'll do a lap around the neighborhood first a lot of times. And it's like two thirds of a mile. And you know, by the end, I'm usually breathing like pretty good. And it's just funny because like I'll have done the breath work in the morning. Like I do morning, just like three cycles of just different breath work type things. And I'm like, man, I am breathing so much harder just running, you know, because it's involuntary. Like it's like, wow, my body is amazing with how powerful it can breathe. And then when I try to go through it, you know, I mean, it's good for me. I think, you know, especially the controlled exhales and the things in breath work and focusing on it that do help you to you know, relax and recover better. Um but then all the way up to in, in working with like distance runners, I really enjoy working with distance running. I've done a lot in sprinting and jumping and track and things like that. But actually, I really enjoy the distance and the endurance side of things. Because if you say anything that's like off mechanically, it just compounds itself really fast and it screws them up and they go back to old mechanics. Whereas the other things like sprints and jumps, you can kind of try it and, and kind of make it work sort of <laughs> more. It, it, it becomes, It's less apparent at first. And so within the running, I've done like, 
uh, like stride-based breathing. Like, all right, we're going to inhale for four strides through the nose, exhale for four strides. It's almost like taking it to a higher level. And it's so interesting. Like I, to me, that is way more exciting watching how people process like running 800 repeats with different sequences than I, and maybe it's just cause I'm a little ADD too. I'm like, all right, let's do something really like, let me watch like some person's killing it. And one person is dying and just can't, there's something that's interesting about that. But yeah, it's interesting that, yeah, the scalability and all that is, is certainly interesting and what happens automatically. Yeah, it's possible that something's valuable and not necessary at the same time. And I think you have to realize that as a coach that like, yeah, this could be valuable for them, but like, it's not necessary either too. You know, we could all get better at breathing. We could all exhale longer, but you know, to a certain point, your time might be better spent elsewhere. And also like one of the things that, you know, maybe not so much in athletics, you know, um, especially at higher levels, but like having them have fun and enjoy the process is like super underrated just like austin right like you guys i'm sure you've talked about that a ton with him he's 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 huge on that right like yeah whether it's a game or it's even just being like hey man like you know like how do you get your toddler to do well right you go hey man here's some uh, illusion of you're actually running the show and they're like wow this is great i love it you know what i mean they just run through the door right so if you go to your client, you're like, oh, yeah, did you like that one? Or did you like that one? Which one made you feel? They're making decisions. Our whole thing is to empower them, right? So like, why not empower them as many ways as we can? And that's one of the ones that you can just by having them involved in it. I like to tell my clients and the people I work with, like, it's a collaborative effort. You know, if you if if, if I have three tools to accomplish one goal, well, thank God I do first off. But second off, which one do you like? Which one feels the best? Or even more importantly, which one are you actually going to do? And when they, when they're, when they're, when they're there, that's, that's, what's going to work. You know, if you hate doing stretching, I'm not going to force you to do stretching, but you know, we might have a conversation about why you're not in middle splits at some point, but at least we can get started in some direction. Yeah. That's one, one thing in particular that like coaching youth sports and then just relearning almost, I mean, I guess I, I took like basic, some basic like motor learning and PE classes in my undergraduate, but I didn't care about physical education at all back then. And now I think about it, like if you're coaching youth sports or anything that's with a younger athlete, it's a hundred percent about what can they do and how exciting can you make it and how fun and how engaging. And I mean, the details and the little complexity is like the last thing on your list, you know? And, but that doesn't, it's not like you become an adult and all of a sudden it's flip-flops like, oh, it's now about the details first. And I think maybe the way that we, the education um, is often like, you know, exercise science degree in physiology. It's almost like we start to think about it that way in some ways. But like you said, it's definitely, it's definitely, it's the engagement first and the, what can you do first? And even too, like just coaching high school track now, um, getting into that chapter of my coaching career, just logistics and organization and getting everyone on the same page, you know, like, and, and just some of those things that when you're working with smaller groups, you don't value as much and just be like, all right, this is, let's get this base layer set up. And now we can start to bring in these other little layers and things like that. Absolutely. And the environment, creating competition, all those things are, are, are not uh, maybe equally, but probably even more important than a lot of those little details. Yeah. I was going to say, Ian, with the, you mentioned the testing, retesting in the same session. I wanted to go back to that. I'm glad you mentioned the same session because yeah, at some point, if it's important, you should measure it again, but it's like, you don't want to bog yourself down in one session and the pressure of that too. It's like, yeah, total buzzkill. But like you said, with lifting and then for myself, I've used more athletic outcomes, like even just watching someone sprint or accelerate, 
you see pretty quickly the range of hip extension and hip flexion they have in a way that they actually can't cheat. It's like one of the best guides to that. Whereas, like you said, like I could get them on the ground and do a test and they might be able to cheat it. And it was even, you mentioned Andrew Spina. My first experience seeing a video of his was, this was after I went to a, a Be Activated seminar a long time ago. And a lot of it was like, hey, test your hamstring, push this point here. Now retest it. Oh, wow, you improved you know, 15 degrees. This must be like, you know, it's the secret sauce, right? And then and he, he had a video of Spina where it's like, all right, well, do your hamstring test. Okay, now let's rub your pinky toe or some, whatever, like call out a spot and then rubs a pinky toe. And of course, you know, 15 more degrees. And so it was funny when I was... T- when I was going through that process and like, you know, muscle testing and glute testing, I would put weights on people's glutes because I'm like, am I biasing this test? Like, am I? And then when I stopped actually believing in some of it because I saw tests that I saw myself biasing, once I started to lose a little bit of um, belief in the exact process it was laid out, my clients or the athletes started to lose it a little bit too. And I'm like, man, how much of this is like mental and trying to get what you want and versus just doing it watch people do their sport movement or lifting right because if it if it's working they should lift better they should feel better when they're squatting they should feel better when they're sprinting or throwing or whatever and then it seems like the the actual range of motion table test is maybe tertiary maybe it's something you it's reference you come back to it you know or i mean i'm assuming that's kind of where you're going with the lifting you know like you you use that as the gauge not getting you back on the ground and testing a joint yeah, so 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 track and field is the best example of it because it's like, all right, well, what really matters? Are you pain free, and is your time improving? Right? Because those super simple. Yeah. Like, all right, not now we're making progress. It gets a little bit diluted in every other way, but like, if you even if you want to just bring it to general population client, like, okay, like, what matters to you? Like, does it hurt? Are you able to do the things you can do? I care way less how much shoulder IR you have face up on a table yeah. than I do that you gardened for an hour and had no shoulder pain. You know what I mean? Like those are the outcomes that I'm after. So the reason I'm not going to test you every single time or or in between every single time or whatever it might be is because I'm going to give you something and two weeks later, you're going to come to me and go like, Hey, my shoulder's been feeling a lot better, you know, or like I was able to do this or I did like one of my other clients who had like chronic back pain the other day, she like went to a wedding, danced four hours all night, woke up, no pain. Like she like couldn't believe it. Like I could care less what her hip rotation is because we're obviously crushing it. You know, yeah. she feels great. Yeah. She's more calm. You know what I mean? So like those are the outcomes that matter. And it all comes down to the goal for track. It's going to be that for basketball. It might be, you know, your vertical, you know, how well you feel shooting. Like, are you getting any hitches in your shot? You know, maybe we need to look at that. So you can always come back to the assessment. It's not, I never do it, but realistically, it's not the the KPI for me in a lot of ways, because the KPI is what the person in front of me defined. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. It's keeping, um, keeping the, and, and I guess in another way of putting it, I'm kind of thinking about stumbling, thinking about what the right phrase is, but just keeping the training vibe, like it's keeping the training vibe and is the main thing feeling better and not getting bogged down with the other little minutia. And it, in a way too, I think if it's in so, so often, if it's, not that important. I feel like it just doesn't get assessed naturally in some ways. Like I've been part of organizations that did huge screens at the beginning of the year. It was just kind of like the thing. And then no one ever really went back to those screens, like those movement and mobility screens. Because I think intuitively and organically, they knew that how the athletes were moving was the most important thing. So 
why go back to it, you know, unless you really need to, or maybe you have a system that helps you to engage with it or re-engage with it periodically. But, yeah, hundred percent. I had a, just one more example. So yeah. this is the person that really taught me this lesson. I would say shout out to Cam. Mm. Cam's one of my clients. I've been training for like, I don't know, five years at this point. Um, he has like maybe 10 degrees of hip IR. He's over 200 pounds. We're lifting, you know, he runs crazy all the time. He's training for, um, a sub, uh, sub, what is it? Sub three, uh, marathon mm. over 200 pounds. He's fine. He never gets hurt. He gets stronger all the time. His times keep going down. And I'm like, we spent our whole first year together trying to get more hip IR. And did we? Yeah, of course. He's had days of 20 and days of 15. But you know what? That 10 is doing everything for him. And he's organized his body in a way to be successful at everything he needs. So when I go to him and I go, hey, I gave you a mobility day. And he goes, yeah, I didn't really love it. You know, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I don't really like all that stuff. And then the next day I give him like, you know, a kickstand hinge to give him a little bit of IR. He feels great. And then he did um, trap bar jumps into some eccentric work with a trap bar. He loved that. You know what I mean? And guess what? What's the main goal? Under, under three for the marathon, get Jack. We're doing it all he wants, you know? So he really taught me that lesson. I was like, well, how's he doing it with the with this hip IR? Isn't he gonna get hurt eventually? And like, no, no, you have some hiccups just like anybody that trains seven days a week. But other than that, he's been cruising and moving in the right direction the whole time. So he was definitely one of those people that really taught me that lesson about this stuff. Yeah. I, I suppose it's it's really easy once we in our area, like to be to be so attached to our thing that, oh, well, if you don't do this thing that I really like, well, you're going to get hurt. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's always, you know, and then we are repeatedly humbled by the human body and adaptation and things like that. Yeah. Don't make a problem out of something that's not a problem. That's that's one of the big things. And that's that's one of the things that I think shying away from the really crazy assessment is really cool because, you know, the last thing you want to do is have someone work with you and leave feeling discouraged. Like, yes. One of the things my brother's, my brother's my business partner, he's kind of been getting on me lately about like, smile more, be enthusiastic, like, let's be inspirational. But like, I'm really kind of like a jokester that like, you know, kind of just hangs out in the background, I'm never going to really scream, right? So like, thinking about like, when your client leaves you, do they feel inspired? Or do they feel like they just got a laundry list of things they can't do? Because that's the opposite of what you should be doing. They should be leaving excited about what they can do already what they're going to be able to do in the future and maybe slightly aware of maybe a few things that might've been holding them back that they need to change. But you, 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 you don't want them leaving thinking about all the things they can't do. And that's oftentimes not always, but it can happen with an assessment or a long mm -hmm. assessment that might not be necessary. Yeah, for sure. So tell me a little bit, Ian, about, so how do you approach assessments now? You get new, new intake, new client in, I mean, how many tests do you even do or, or do you just watch other movements in general? How do you go about that now? So if someone came to me and they're pain free, you know, like they're just looking to get in better shape or something like that, I'll probably go toe touch, squat. I'll teach them a hip and a shoulder car in the session so that they can take it home for homework because that's one of the other big things like I don't think I'm not the most expensive person in the world, but it's also not cheap to work with us. You know, we're, we're, we're a luxury or, or, or as you would think of it as a luxury service, even though I think we are preventative healthcare at the same time, you know, not everybody can afford training, whatever. Mm. So I like to leave people with their assessment with homework. So like that would be an example of homework. Like, Hey, we, we filmed your hip car. We filmed your shoulder car. 
Um, we filmed your toe touch. We, I really, I actually, one of the things that's more specific that I'll look at is I'll look at pronation supination. So I'll have them do like a aim, like a Gary Ward kind of knee bend. And I'll just like, I'll get the side view. I'll get tibial rotation from the front view. I think that tells a lot. I think you get that with the squat and a hip car. I basically know everything about the lower limb at this point. You know what I mean? Um, so those would be my big ones. I like a posture picture. I really do. You yeah. know, I know it's kind of against everything we talked about, but mm. I do love it. Yeah. The thing that I like to say about assessments that I teach at our workshops is like, I'm not looking for one thing and then going off of it. I'm looking for four things that point in the same direction. So if I see that you have a lower right shoulder, you also are have no shoulder IR on the right side. You're complaining about getting pain with rows. You can't scratch your back behind you. You know what I mean? And then like when we do the breathing, like you just flare your ribs up and your chest doesn't move at all. All right. I just got five things to work off. You know what I mean? Um, so that that's how I'll kind of go about it. If I have someone that does come in with some chronic pain or something like that, then I'm going to look at more things. So like I said, if you have a wrist injury, I'm going to look at can your wrist extend? Can your wrist flex? And I might teach you the wrist car so you can just start going on it and working on it. Um, I'm also going to maybe look at a spinal car for someone that has back pain. And, um, although I shied away from it more so recently, I probably would, if, especially if someone's in, in pain, I'd probably take them through hip rotation on the table. Um, and, and, uh, maybe just go through some classic like hip flexion, just see if it's pinchy on each side, get some idea of that. And, um, the way that I'm going to do it though, another thing that's probably important is I'm going to do it on the ground with the foot on the wall. So yeah. I'm not going to even put them on a table because I do feel like the table kind of blurs the lines between physical therapist and personal trainer, which is my line is the grayest thing ever already. So like I try to have something there, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I like that. But basically, if someone's at home, like say you're going to do a single leg raise or uh, something like that, you're laying flat on your back, the leg that's not moving, that foot is toe up and facing on the wall. Yeah. That basically locks them into place so that they can't cheat and just like, it gives you like the tiniest bit more objectivity when you're looking at the test because they're already going to, you know, flex the the hip and roll onto their back and abduct and adduct and do all this stuff. But at least they do a little bit less of it if that foot yeah. locks them in. So and that's also a really great like little gem for anybody that does online training, right? Like your your assessments online are going to be a nightmare. I mean, people are sending you videos in the dark if you've been doing it long enough. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you're if you can lock them into place a little bit, that can be really helpful there too for them. So that's kind of how I'm doing assessments at this point. It depends on the person. It could go as in-depth as looking at most things and it could go as 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 short as like, "Hey, let's just get you moving and like let me just see like quick 20 minutes toe touch." Uh, you know, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the Gary Ward, uh, knee bend. I've, I've probably seen it, but I, I, I don't, uh, there's not a picture of it coming to my mind off. Yeah, for sure. So you're basically just got one foot in front of the other, almost like a split stance. And I literally, for the assessment, I would just have you stand up and I'd be like, I just want you to bend your knee, just like slowly bend your front knee. And essentially everybody will, I like to describe the foot as like, almost like train stops. You know, I lived in New York for a while. So like think of heel strike as the first stop on the train. Mid stance is second. If you want to get fancy, you can add a third and a fourth in terms of like or late mid stance, whatever, or toe off. But I like to think of those. And like, if you see someone bend their knee, like nine times out of 10, they're just going to skip heel, heel strike completely. And they're just going to jam the front of the ankle up. And then they're going to be like, oh, that's that feeling I feel when I squat. 
and you'll see that their foot doesn't change shape at all. So it's just something there. And it just becomes a corrective too, because all you have to do is make sure you bring them all the way back, shift their center of mass back, tell them to stay heel heavy and bend their knee gently. And like their foot unlocks, their knee pain goes away. Like that can be like super powerful. And one of the things that I try to do is I try to have everything build on top of each other. So like when I'm, when I get them to squat and I'm like, Hey, you know how you were doing your knee bend first and like you couldn't let go of your knee. A lot of people will keep so much tension above the knee, especially the quad that like, they won't be able to just like let go of it, unlock again, like going back to what a lot of the, like the principles that David would teach or, um, you know, like just the idea of like letting gravity do the work, like let go and let it bend forward. A lot of people will struggle with that. So then when we go to squat, I can go, hey, remember when we worked on just like letting go, like let your knees just bend forward, let your split squat just bend forward. So like it really builds on it. Another thing that I do with that that's really great is like um, if you're familiar with like scissor slides or PRI hip shifts, you know, your face up, you got your feet on the wall, 90 degrees, you got a foam roller or a ball between your knees and you're just shifting one hip up, one hip down. I mean, that alone is one of the best drills ever. But on top of it, it teaches so many things at once. So like when I go to teach someone how to hip hinge and they need to learn to shift to get over that side and they're not dropping their back knee forward to get them into the front hip. Hmm. Hey, remember our scissor slides? You had to pull one back and let the other one go up. You see how this one's dropping up and they go, oh, and then they pop right into their hip. And then it's like, oh, that's way different, you know? So like a lot of the things that I teach, even in the assessment, like I said, with the hip cars, I'm trying to like create that connection and build off of it later in the session so that they can draw upon that. Yeah. With, um, so this was something I, I had alluded to, and I think we covered it in quite a bit of detail, uh, throughout our conversation so far, but you know, with you mentioning, uh, like the FRC, some of the PRI drills, and then like the shape and structure of the rib cage itself, but that's, it seems to me that in more the, I guess you could say compression expansion or just structural biomechanics model, we have, you know, all these layers of compensation and how the body operates through its comp- compensatory layers and motions. And it's, it's almost like looking at it in some ways as, as a, you have your structure that's almost more of this hardware. It's harder to change. You have your breathing that could change things. And then you have almost more of the software, like, like even the breakdancing thing. Like, why did breakdancing improve my range so much? Did it change my rib cage? Probably not really. Like, I mean, it probably just really got every, like, it's almost like there's a global disinhibition parasympathetic, but like FRC, maybe there's a local too. Like, that's a software level thing. And, but then, like you said, some of those things can be temporary. Like, aren't we're more interested in things that are feeling better and good long term? And so I'm just curious what you're looking for or how do you approach, maybe how do you just approach that structural side? So all those things from the structural rib cage piece. And just the one last thing I'll say, I don't want to over talk here, but just to give people a picture, like to, to have a very clear picture of structure um, would be Alex Efferd mentioned this. I took his mentorship and loved it is like, if you're barbell benching and you think of your chest as a water balloon, you know, you're always, you're squishing that water balloon or Pat Davidson has said, you know, anterior to posterior. You're, and you constantly do that enough, you know, with so much weight. And that's basically what happened to me. Like that's, I used to be able to touch my fingers behind my back and in, as to my understanding, that's the biggest reason why I can't is because I just changed the shape of my rib cage. And, but changing it back is not, it's not as easy as just, hey, do these three drills for a few weeks and you're going to, I'm like, man, I really got myself and I can see it. But the software, anyway, so that being a structural thing, how do you balance the structure, the long term? Uh, what are some things you're thinking about as you go through that process? 
Yeah, for sure. So first, you, I think you did a really good job of describing that. So like when you think about local structure, you can also think about that and even software. So in an FRS uh, perspective, you kind of think about the joint capsule as that. Hmm. And then you kind of think about the breath work could also be so many people I meet, they don't need more tension or specific tension this area. They need to use this muscle. The first thing they need is just to let go of tension. Like hmm. they need to stop squeezing their butt all day. They need to stop six pack crunching their sternum down on everything they do. And then they need to do every time they do something athletic or powerful, they need to do way less of just going rib flare into their lower back. So like most of the people need to just like dial it down before they can even start going in any direction of dialing it up. And those things can happen at the same time in terms of how to address the structural thing. The perfect thing, like what you just said with the the rib cage. That person needs to be on their side, right? So something like a side plank. They need to learn how to breathe into the front and the back of their chest. I can constrain them in any way possible. So like we alluded to earlier, I might create some sort of a secret sauce, right? So like think about that again. It's just like a few exercises very specific to them. They can do them as much as they want, but at least three times a week to kind of get the ball rolling. Mm. Those things are going to be designed to open up temporary kind of changes to then step through that door and do your strength training, do your loading, do those things. Um, but just because something's not a strong and a overpowering input doesn't mean it can't be a long lasting uh, through repetition and time and understanding. For example, with the butt clenching, if you're aware of you clenching your butt and it's losing all your hip rotation and pulling on your lower back, if you learn how to do it in a drill, and then you eventually carry over and learn yeah. how to be like, man, every time I coach, I'm like squeezing my butthole for some reason. Like, why <laughs> am I doing that? You let go of that. All of a sudden, yeah. your hips and your back are like, damn, I'm feeling good. This is yeah. nice. you know. So like, that's one major thing that I think a lot of people miss is just like letting go of tension, which is why in FRC, when you know you do everything at a high level of tension or radiation, squeeze everything, squeeze your quads. That can be detrimental to some people, but at best, it's just not, it's it's just a small piece of the puzzle, whereas a lot of those people do need to let go. Now, in terms of changing the the structural stuff, especially at the rib cage, I think just using alternating and reciprocal strength training is just the best yeah. way. Like if, unless you want to be a bodybuilder and like really put on mass, there's really no reason for you not to just do reciprocal mm -hmm. alternating stuff. Like. And for anybody listening, alternating stuff, just think about like one of my arms presses, one of my arms rows. So like they're moving in opposition. One of the biggest things that you need to be able to do as a human being is move your rib cage without your neck. So if I can turn my chest to the left and keep my head straight, I'm probably doing pretty well. If I can do it the opposite way, I'm probably doing pretty well. That variability at the rib cage and the neck alone is going to do wonders for everything. You can do the same thing at the hips. Can I turn my belt buckle? Can I turn my belt buckle one way and turn that the other way? So implementing strength training, whether it be with med balls, whether it be like plyos, like something else that I'm like the deepest, not the deepest rabbit hole, because I do think it's actually pretty straightforward. But my favorite rabbit hole right now is um, um, Matt McInnes, the, uh, the, the deep yielding plyos, like talking about adding that to a mobility arsenal. You know what I mean? Like you're trying to open up, uh, you know, hip abduction and get someone's groin to let go. And you just gradually build them up to that fast stretch into the bottom of a jump and then popping out of it like once they can do that their groin's probably pretty open if they can do it at a high speed you know and having that account for their specific goal of what they might need in their sport 
Uh, so in terms of the structure, I do really believe that you can make structural changes, um, even for yourself, like what you're talking about visibly, like seeing like maybe like more open, especially in the back ribs. I think most people are so crushed in their lower back ribs that like when I teach them how to like round them and then how to breathe into them and get separation between those ribs, that can be absolutely a game changer and just having it all build on top of each other. And again, like something as simple as taping your mouth and making sure you breathe in through your nose all night is like, you don't have to do anything. You literally just put it on, didn't panic, forgot about it. And your breath overnight is going to substantially help you change your structure. For the person that's a wide, that's completely crushed on a wide infrasternal angle, meaning like the same, um, you know, smushed in the front, smushed in the back. Think about the bench presser. If they sleep on their side and they have a pillow between their knees, you could even get crazy, put one under your your hip too, and then your head, and then you have mouth tape. Like that person's going to wake up with more shoulder IR. I can guarantee it. And little things like that build up. So it's really about the structural thing is about, yeah, there's quick fixes that might open up space, but it's just about taking a long-term approach. And I think adding in alternating and reciprocating strength, especially for lower body, you know, it just, it's just a no brainer. I, I, I really love how you put that together. It makes me think a little bit as well. Uh, maybe this is slightly different, but it's still, I think in the ballpark for sure is modulating sprinting and sprints that are a little bit like long enough that you can even feel a little bit of muscle fatigue, like between 120 to 200 meters, things like that. And doing things before the sprint that it's almost like you said, the gateway, like different dynamic lunges, crossover lunges, lateral lunges like different uh, isometrics and different things that you will have a different experience when you do the big thing. Because it's the big thing, like the big stimulus that's going to make the biggest changes. Doing a set of lateral lunges is cool, but I don't know, it's, it's going to change that much, uh, maybe a little bit. But it's almost like these little like boosters that can boost that main rocket, you know, that main thing that's going to deliver like the, the big strength training. Or something I think about that Tommy John has said is, like you, your current posture and everything is kind of the product of think of all those extremely stimulating things that got you there. Like if, like I was obsessed with, you know, like or a lot of people, Hey, I want to bench press more. Think about all the effort, you know, that goes into benching as much as you can and all that stimulus. And then, so you have to kind of probably be in the ballpark to start making meaningful changes. But like you said, I, I love that sideline will you sleep anecdote? Cause that's time. It's also like extrapolating a time. Like that's a big stimulus. Like, Gravity over time, like a water over a rock. Oh, you know, uh, give it long enough. And exactly, exactly. Yeah. Just think seven days a week, six to eight hours, you know, because like, again, I think, yeah, you need first off, like a big piece of this puzzle is really just communication. Like the person that you're working with should be telling you like, hey, like this isn't going to happen overnight. These are the things that we need to lay out realistic expectations. These are the things that we need you to be consistent with. And also, like you, you, you bench press for twenty years. Like you don't, you, you're not gonna overcome it in five days. You know what I mean? It's just as simple as that. Yes. So yeah, I think you can have little rocks that are the water. You can have big rocks that could be like a high intensity stretch, and you can just have like the in betweens that are like that quality strength training that gets your rib cage moving, that gets that starts off with a good stack because again. You start off in a good position, you have way more options to move forward. If you live life on your toes, you're not going to be able to go too many places other than falling forward, you know? Yeah. Uh, just closing things out here, Ian, I, I did want to come back to breath work. And so you had mentioned it a lot already, but like 
lowest hanging fruit or, or entry level like that Mr. Miyagi washing the fence or whatever, like level to breath work. And I, I've seen too, by the way, you mentioned that posterior expansion, like I've seen before and afters that you've put on your Instagram with that posterior expansion of the ribs, like this is awesome. Um, but just anything you want to talk about with that entry level breath work and then how to maybe if there's some secret sauces here or there you give with that, but how to keep that, um, you know, base level effective for people. Yeah, absolutely. So like, it's easy to overcomplicate it like we've been talking about, but realistically, like, so if you wanted to actually do this, you could just go YouTube, Ian Marco, intro to core. So like, think about like you're laying flat on your back. This is the way I like to teach it. So you have your whole entire rib cage needs to be able to expand and compress, right? That includes your belly, but obviously your lungs aren't in your belly, right? But a lot of the people like what I'm talking about, like, for example, so many people have done a 90-90 hamstring bridge from PRI, right? And they thought they were tucking their pelvis, but they were really just crunching their lower abs to fake it, right? So I'll start off the routine. You're laying on your back. It's almost like hook lying, right? So my knees are soft and bent, but my feet are on the ground. My head's relaxed. I'm going to go ahead and use my hands as much as I need to, whether you want to put them on the belly, on the, on the chest, whatever it is. I'm going to start off the routine with five belly breaths. Not because you're you're ever going to belly breath again, but because to begin the routine, to understand what it feels like to have your diaphragm drop down and just let go of tension around your lower belly. This is huge for like anybody that's done Pilates, pull your belly button to your spine. Anybody that's worked in, uh, you know, athletics and been like, hey, brace your core before every lift, right? You just squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. So again, people need to learn how to let go, especially mm. things down low and especially around the butt. There's a lot of people that have no hip rotation because they're squeezing their all the tissue around their pelvis all the time. So in, inhale, super relaxed. One thing I always say to everybody, inhale like a ninja, like you're sneaking in through the night. Nobody should ever hear you inhale. Like I never want to hear my client inhale. Exhale, sure, can be long. Most people need to learn how to exhale way longer. So something simple, if you're if you are a numbers guy or a numbers girl, think about how long can I inhale relaxed? How long can I exhale? Mm. Super simple. Like the, again, the lowest hanging fruit. I guarantee that most people can't really exhale for 10 seconds. Yeah. And if they do, they will panic immediately after, which is also another huge point. So you want to get good at organizing the rib cage and the pelvis, get good at being relaxed after fully exhaling. That's a huge, huge, like just cheat code. So I'll start off with like five belly breaths, then I'll go lateral. So you're literally just breathing into the sides. I like to think about this as getting like a baby back ribs. So like if you had good baby back ribs, they'd have a lot of meat in between the bone. That's how your um, inhale should be. So when you inhale, the ribs on the side of your, uh, the rib cage should actually expand away from each other. When you exhale, it should be like you've already eaten all the meat. So they come together. So I get lateral going. Most of the time, it's just to get people aware of this. And like we talked about earlier, the opposite example, if you're a ballerina, you're a yogi, you're something like this, you might be so smushed from the sides that like you literally can't get your ribs to move sideways. And that could be something that's limiting you. And then after that, I'll go into like a classic 360 or elevator breath. It's really as simple as just fill up every single floor in every single direction. I think a lot of people don't really understand the idea of like outward pressure especially on the exhale. So IAP or intra-abdominal pressure, if I was to punch you in the stomach, I wouldn't want to be pulling my belly button in. That's just going to add to the punch. I need some outward pressure. 
If you ever watch someone that's like doing like the crazy, like I'm going to punch you in the stomach, you'll never see someone pull their belly button in before Mike Tyson punches them in the stomach. That would be a terrible idea. So being able to maintain outward pressure on the exhale, which will take time, is also really important. So again, fully inhale, fully exhale. Pay attention to whether you're crunching down on your exhales or you're pushing your head into the ground is another one. Relax your butt. Let it go all the way in, let it go all the way out. And then in the video, you'll see basically what I have everybody do is inhale and then lift their feet. Nine out of 10 people are going to immediately smush their back into the ground because they've been told their entire life, do not lift your lower back. Do dead bugs like this. Do planks mm. like this. Do this always. And then they get up and their back's like, where's the ground at? I don't have ground because you've been training yourself not to do something wrong because there's value in it, but to do something only one way. And when you watch Tyreek Hill running, he is not tucking his mm -hmm. butt and he's definitely not flattening out his back. Yeah. So you need to be able to do both. And the way that I describe it is kind of like training up. So I like to think about training up and training out. You can almost think there's upward arrows going up to your head and then out to the side of your shoulders as if you were getting wider. So the idea of filling everything up and being able to exhale it out and maintain length is another concept that I teach with everybody. And it's like, well, what's what's your ultimate, you know, foe in life? It's 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 going to be gravity. It's not going anywhere. It's going to be pushing down on you. So how can you feel your foot push through the ground and fight gravity without in in an efficient strategy? It's always going to start from the middle. A lot of my clients, I'll kind of talk about like majoring and standing in a way hmm. because they always ask about it anyway and like it's always like super locked knees or really like so much tension i'm like all you're doing is standing do you really need to squeeze your glutes just to stand yeah. i hope not <laughs> like just relax your knees and take a few breaths and what happens is they end up kind of like almost like feeling themselves shift back to their midfoot from their toes and then they're able to just settle there and that's just a good example of like just an easy drill to like get these complex topics out to just think, can you just settle on your midfoot and just use the stack to stay there? Not the extra tension, in your glutes, not your calves, not your back. None of that. That's where, yeah, uh, breathing. Uh, I think you had mentioned this before, like the irradiation uh, versus the yielding. I know you, um, you and David Gray were talking about that on his podcast. And breathing is, I think it's, it's that one thing, if, if of anything that you can't do well, unless there's a, it's like a, and you don't even have to say it. You just have to yield to fill. Like you said, you have to fill all areas of the container. You can't do that by, uh, air quotes, activating. Oh man, activate real hard. This to no, like you have to like yield stuff to do that. It's just like, I love it's it. Natural. I love it. I've never thought of using the word yield in that way, but I love that. That's, that makes so much sense. Yeah. Like, especially around the chest, you know, like. Yeah. You start watching people breathe, you're like, your chest like hasn't really moved in a really mm -hmm. long time. And then you get them to feel it the first time and they're like mind blown. Yeah. But you're right. Like if your sternum is pulling down and doesn't know how to yield and let go, it's not going to expand. And then your shoulder, your, your collarbone, they all follow it. They're getting pulled down. Yeah. I, I Just a couple of things too. Um, based off what you said, one, you were talking about like the pelvis expanding and even two, like not squeezing the butt. Or even then, like, um, I think it was a David Gray video on, and, and Katie St. Clair has talked about this idea as well. Like, basically, when you're doing hinging or deadlifting, you want your butt to get as big as possible. So, you're not squeezing your butt or your pelvic floor while you're doing that. You're letting it open. And even thinking about the, going back to 
like the hardware and software and changes over time. Like as soon as I really made it a point to take that on in my own deadlifting, I found I'm like, wow, I'm actually using my glutes way more in a really positive way because I'm doing this. And if I don't do it, I feel my back working a lot more. And I'm like, well, what if you deadlift it? You know, you do do a thousand deadlifts over however long a time span. And you think, well, what if you did those thousand deadlifts with the glutes clenched more than they should have versus letting that those hips expand? How will that change the muscular layout and contribution and stress on the lumbar? I mean, it's it's substantial. Um I was going to say with the time breath, you said you mentioned how long inhale and exhale. And that brought me back to, I remember when I was at Cal working with the women's swim team, one thing we would often do at the end of the workout. And I'd say one of the more stressed athletic groups in the college level, especially D1 in an academic school is women's swimming. They're really good athletes. They swim a lot. They train a lot. They're good academically. So they have a lot on their plate academically. And so we made the breathing a big, an important part of that at the end of the um, training. And it, I always got really good feedback. They loved it. They were like, that was one of the things that really sold me on making this a bigger part of the training program. And one of the things I just decided to do this again, kind of like I mentioned with the stretching, like, all right, well, we're doing it. Well, how far can we take this? You know, like that's kind of where my mind always goes. So I'm like, all right, take two breaths in and out. They were lying on their back as slow as you can through your nose. And basically when you're done with two breaths, inhale and exhale, raise your hand. And it was just so interesting because there were some girls, I, I think it was like less than 30 seconds, like 25 seconds, their two cycles are done. And then there were others who could go up to two minutes. And on one level, I, the only thing I was chalking that up to at the time was just um, like psychology, you know, stress. And yes, if you're more in a sympathetic state, certainly. Um, but I hadn't thought of like what you said, there's also like, you know, can those tissues expand and contract fully as well? And so that's something I wish I could have gone back you know, in, in that time. And certainly we'll think of moving forward with that. That's, that's a really interesting. And again, it's like a, like a low hanging bar to jump over. Like that takes, that's a very simple thing for any coach to jump over a trainer to say, Hey, take these breaths in. Let's see how slowly I just think there's so much that you could learn there because it would open you up to other directions to go without being like an overly like uh, microscopic thing right off the front end too. Percent agree. Yeah, it's. I think effortless efficiency is a big kind of like catchphrase that I've been really loving for the past few years. Like the idea that like you know you you don't you use as much tension as you need, but no more than that. Because like why that that's what efficiency is, and athletics comes down to efficiency. I mean, whether they're swimming or boxing or or sprinting, whatever it might be, you know, like you're gonna need energy on the fourth lap. So if you blow everything out in the first, or if you're clenching your whole entire body during a boxing match, you're going to get knocked out. You're going to get tired quicker. So just being effortlessly efficient is like such a big thing that I think doesn't really get trained a lot of the ways. And that's why I like a lot of that yielding stuff. Cause like it's efficient to let go when you need to, and then to boom, spring up out of the bottom, which I really love. And on the deadlift thing, I really think that you could see completely different structures with those two people. I think you'd see someone that has like pythons for lumbar erectors and very small glutes. And I think the person that's lifting way less weight and is hinging well would be way tighter at their waist. So they wouldn't be as blocky from the erectors. And I think they'd have a way bigger butt, especially their glute med and more towards the top of the butt, which is often asked to lengthen and stabilize in those single leg stances, especially when the hip is in adduction. So being able to like actually hinge like that, even if you have to lose weight, is like the biggest thing that we teach, honestly, at our workshops. It's kind of like people come to our workshops for like all these different things. And then they kind of like relearn how to hip hinge. They're like, wow, like I can't believe that was the thing. You know what I mean? 
Because like learning how to hip hinge when you're 10, 5, even 20 years into your career is like, nah, I'm good. I don't need that. But when you actually learn it like that, it's like, oh, that's a totally different scenario. And if your glutes don't lengthen, they're not going to load as well, or, or if at all, honestly. So like being able, anybody can find a hamstring stretch. Very few people that I work with off the bat can find a glute stretch. Yeah, I, I think that that um something I've been thinking about a lot, just in general, like like thinking about systems and how to approach your training from a systems perspective is one is finding the polarity that exists in any training variable, the workable polarity. And like, for example, if you're doing, if I'm training a hundred meter sprinter, the, the, at the lowest end is a single burst that takes a second, you know, like you're going to do a five meter, just a couple steps out of the blocks or something or a depth jump or whatever. And then the other end is the, here's the longest we're going to possibly work for a single bout. Maybe it's a 300, a 45 second or 40 second or 35 or whatever it is. Um, but then the, in, in just general training being like total contraction and radiation on one end and then total yielding on the other. But most, I think a lot of times people don't ever get to that total yielding point. It's like their polarity stops about halfway through, you know, and, and to be able to really find and feel that in any given movement is really, really powerful. And, uh, you know, you were thinking about or talking about that effortless efficiency. It made me think of, it's just funny to see this show up in different systems. There was a day I was working out um, with um, a guy who had the Evo Plus app on his phone. It's like Jay Schrader's um, uh, training app. And the first exercise was two minute left leg forward, ISO lunge, but you did a Russian jump every five seconds. So here you are doing 24, I guess, or so Russian jumps uh, in two minutes on your left leg. And I'm like, that's, I mean, dude, like, it, it's like the holding at some point you do a few, you're like eight or nine jumps in, dude, you're not irradiating on any of those jump, those holds anymore. You are like lengthening and yielding and how efficient can I be? You have one polarity. And then, all right, jump and get your legs up as high as you can. Now you have the other and it's all wrapped up in one set. You do that on both. I remember I did that on both legs and I'm like, man, I'm pretty warmed up right now. Like I'm ready to jump high already. I'm ready to sprint fast already. And that was crazy, you know, like, and it's, it's kind of cool to, to, and and that's so organic because you could do that and you don't, I don't have to tell anybody, Hey, I mean, yeah, there's ways to optimize it, of course, like little micros to go into, but in general, that's a pretty potent stimulus in its own right so it's cool to think about things um like that there and uh yeah so uh just about done here i did actually i wanted to bring up horse stance <laughs> just because i just out of curiosity i don't hear that a lot and i love you know martial arts and all that like it's almost like the original isometric it's just curious what what got that on your radar and how you use that one yeah so like frc was uh you know they use a lot of isometrics that's what the pails and rails is so like basically like end range isometrics but like you know, Jake Turr is another person that I love and like getting into like the tendon research and all that kind of stuff. And like some one of the things that I try to do is try to get ahead of problems so I don't have to solve them. So for me, having something like a split squat hold, that's going to really um, condition the knee, condition the patella tendon, you know, get that back hip and hip extension. And then for the groin, like I work with uh, a decent amount of soccer players. So like you know, having someone be able to have their groin work short and then also be able to isometrically hold at length is is pretty valuable for them. And again, simplicity, like, all right, cool, you have an off day today. Guess what? Oftentimes I'll give people an isometric day. So like they'll do, they'll have to uh, get two minutes and as few sets as possible. So split squat, 
floating heel split squat, horse stance. I started adding, I really like this. Uh, one of my clients, like at least the sickos do, but I did a, an overhead shoulder uh, hold. Uh, so basically you just shoulder press and just sit there as long as you can. It's just terrible. Um, and then also like a barbell or a hang from like a, a pull up hang, you know? So like within those, like you're checking so many boxes oh, yeah. in one set, it gives you something to challenge yourself and build up to. And just like the, the cold plunge is like this huge phenomenon right now. Like, well, it's the same thing. Like you're in the bottom of a split squat and your leg is violently shaking. Like you need to learn how to get through that wall. You know what I mean? So like, I really love that. I use horse stance like that all the time. And um, also just as something like I talked about earlier, I'm always trying, if I'm working on your hip mobility, I'm always trying to have the foot involved. I just think it's just such a great opportunity. So if you did a bunch of ground-based stuff like frogs and um, liftoffs and all these other, and cars and all these other cool mobility things, I might end your session like, hey, guess what? You know that groin that you just opened up? Now keep it open for two minutes with your feet on the ground, which is what a horse stance is. So it just fits so perfectly in so many things that I do. Yeah. I love, just speaking of the polarity too, I love that. Like you're, there's like the IR, you can do like a single like staggered stance and getting IR in one spectrum. And then, you know, kind of the groin shortening a little bit on that lead leg. And then on the other side, you get that horse stance to open it up. So it's just cool to think about that. Um, Ian, where do people, where can people find more about you? You mentioned like courses, educational material, uh, anything there you want to mention before we um, wrap up the show today? Yeah, I appreciate it. So um, on Instagram, it's at Ian Marco. That's I-N-M-A-R-K-O-W. Um, I'm on YouTube. You guys heard earlier before, if any of these concepts are new to you, just go to YouTube. You can see them for free and, and go through the intro to core or the cars routine that you'll see on my page. Um, we have a workshop in Boca Raton, Florida, um, early February. We're going to be in Austin, Texas at Onnit in, uh, in uh, April um, for workshops. And then... Um, Honestly, if you're interested in something, just send me a DM, reach out, say that you listen to the podcast and um, we'll take it from there. Awesome. Well, I thank you so much, Ian. Uh, this was a great show and it was great talking to you today. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next week.